Randy. And I'm Claire. And you're listening to Killer Vibes, a true crime podcast. So today we're talking about Centoya Brown, and I've already told you about the murder and about her life pre-murder, so now I'm just going to continue telling you about that. (laughs) So on to our discussion of the Brown family. So they are both really positive for Centoya and really negative for Centoya. The mom, Elinette, is good, but the dad was physically abusive. That caused some difficulties in the mother and daughter relationship because Elinette either didn't know about the abuse or she didn't do anything about it. So I think that the sort of animosity that she feels for her mom, Elinette, which she calls Elinette mom in this documentary, right, is that she didn't do anything to really address it or sure. make it better. And so she's kind of like standing by while it was happening. Yes. Or she didn't know, know about, about it, it is a possibility. It didn't really clarify. Sure. Also, while living with them, Centoya experiences a lot of sexual abuse. By the time she was arrested for the murder, she had had sex with 36 people and 22 of those she said she felt obligated to have sex with, which makes me want to cry Um, (laughs) for her. But knowing her maternal family's long history with rape and other forms of sexual abuse, I can see why she thought she was obligated to do it. The word obligated is one that she actually uses to describe these experiences, which tells me that on top of the like genetic or learned behavior that she has from her biological mom's family, that there was probably a lack of sex education in the Brown household. Or maybe Elinette did talk with her about it, but Centoya's like inherent understanding of it or her experiences or her what she observed informed her opinion about sex so much so that so much so that it just overpowered. Elinette's conversations with her if she had any. Does that make sense? Yeah. So she she obviously just wasn't educated about what sex is. Right. And sort of um and again, like you were saying, yeah, yeah. All of that makes sense. Right. Because so. I mean you can still educate someone about it and they can and just they can sort totally, of not believe you. Yeah, or they could just totally misconceive as well. It has to be approached in a certain way. And growing up in a household that was already physically abusive and like you said, she had all of this sexual um, abuse history in her family you already know that you have to approach that conversation in a very tentative way so that the explanation can kind of get through to them. And you literally have to say, you are not obligated to do this. Yeah. And sometimes maybe that didn't happen, that conversation. Right. In that way. And sometimes your perception of things, especially at, you know, like as a young teenager can be like so strong that you just someone can say something to you and you're like, yeah, whatever, you know, or like, Mm -hmm. yeah, you're just being like brush really. Yeah. You know, you're painting it in this better picture than it really is. Yeah. And I know some conversations about sex are like annoying. Like they're they're like, it's supposed to be this magical experience. And it's like, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) It just sometimes people approach it in such an odd way that makes it seem very fluffy when it should be talked about in terms of reality. And maybe she got the fluffy version and brushed it off, like you said, and didn't get the reality. And maybe she didn't even know about her familial sexual history and how that is I think bad she, for you. I think she knew about it because 
even though she was like adopted by the Brown family, she still knew about that. She okay. she was very much aware that she was adopted and like where right, she came right, from. Right, right. Mm-hmm. That probably affected it too. Whether those behaviors were genetic or whether those behaviors were learned or whether they just knowing about them in general made her like, oh, this is this is who I am. This is this is where I'm at. You know, this is what I have to do. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. I don't know. Any one of those things could have been happening. <laughs> All of those answers are a poss- possibility. Gotcha. Yes. Regardless, she essentially was raped 22 times. Yes. By the time she was 16. So the other sad part of this is that she didn't share any of these sexual experiences. Well, I don't want to call rape a sexual experience because it's no. not sex, but she didn't share any of these experiences with her mom or anyone really because she said she didn't feel like she could. She said that she felt like if she had told Elena that she would be like, oh, whatever, kind of like brush her off. Right. And so that's even more sad that she had these things happen to her and she didn't know what to do about them. So she just kind of accepted it and it became part of her identity in a way, which definitely makes a lot of sense when you now picture her on the night in question, or it's not in question, it happened, (laughs) on the night that she murdered Johnny, you can definitely understand all of these feelings of insecurity from the being passed around on top of the sexual abuse and having, you know, all this stuff. You can definitely see how that comes up on this night. Right. Absolutely. It's very clear and evident, I think. Mm-hmm. Additionally, while with the Brown family, she had a lot of behavioral issues and she did not succeed in school at all. Starting in elementary school, she had a lot of problems. I even read one in one place that she committed burglary with some of her like girlfriends when she was a teenager. And sure. that wasn't in the documentary. I read that somewhere. So I don't know how true that is. But overall... She had some behavioral issues, and this can be attributed to one of two things. So one being the mental health issues that ran in her family that she may have inherited, and two, the fact that she suffered from fetal alcohol syndrome, which the psychiatrist in the documentary explained can cause brain damage as a fetus. So these brain damage issues can manifest themselves right away or when you're older. I mean, a lot of different options kind of exist there. So no one really pinpoints exactly what it is, but everyone has this general conversation about, well, she could have had this personality disorder and this one, and she probably had this and probably had that. And, right. You know, so it's kind of a cocktail, if you will. Right. No one really diagnosed um, her with anything that yeah. I could find, but. Right. And she may exhibit like only pieces of certain mental disorders because out, fetal alcoholism causes just brain damage and so that damage can affect multiple parts of your brain and can showcase in multiple different personality disorders right so it may be a weird mixture of things yeah so an example of that would be like the personality disorder of borderline personality Mm -hmm. which is essentially that you're very impulsive and the part in your brain that controls decision making is not as strong as other people's so If you and a lot of addicts actually have this personality disorder, but that's an example of something that Centoya could have had based on the brain damage that she was born with. You know, like literally the second she existed in the world, she was facing adversity and it just continued and got worse and was not addressed it properly. 
Right. That's a very, yeah, good distinction because not that everyone who has a mental health disorder or a personality disorder is going to be X, Y, or Z. Like, that's no. not what I'm saying at all. But it's if it's not properly addressed, it can lead to. Yeah, it can manifest itself in multiple different ways. And for Centoya, it seems like criminal behavior and um, impulsive decision making, including running away from home at 16, is like, that's ha- what happened to her because it wasn't dealt with. Yeah. So, yeah, so she runs away from, good segue, she, <laughs> she does run away from home at 16, but it's not like she ran away, like, put, put her stuff in a backpack and peaced out. Like, it was a decision <laughs> she'd made and told the right. Brown family about, uh-huh. and they can't really do much because she wasn't officially adopted by them. Right, so they're not really in control of her decisions. Yeah, so, and I don't know if they were just fine with it. Maybe they were, because, I mean, obviously, it was an abusive household. I think she was just, like... Yeah, I need to get out of here. And Right. And maybe she had some like she was a problem kid, too. I mean, if she was committing burglary and wasn't doing well in school and all this stuff, maybe they kind of were like, OK, we don't know what else to do. I mean, yeah, which is stupid. Don't do yes. that. It's like <laughs> that's not the right decision. You should encourage them to stay. But or it's not even just encourage them to stay. You should acknowledge you should if you're a parent, I feel like you could address those issues with the various resources that could help you. And Elena, yeah. Elena being a teacher, I'm sure she had knowledge of what resources could have helped Centoya. I don't I don't know if she maybe she did use utilize some of those resources mm-hmm. and it just didn't really do much because Centoya has all of these outside factors that I don't even I don't know what could have addressed those to completely get rid of them. Exactly. Ever. And obviously today she's gone through tons of therapy, a lot of work on herself. And she's older. She's like 30. So that's a totally different story than when you're 16 and you have all of this stuff going on in your head and you're like hormonal and you have, (laughs) I mean. Yeah. You're just like right. Like for women, that puberty line is right there. Like it's like 15, 16. So all your feelings are just exacerbated. Yes. Everything is just happening all at once and we lived through it it was terrible (laughs) and Centoya is technically 16 but I would Mm -hmm. argue that she's like probably more based on the experiences she's Mm -hmm. had in her life up until 16 she's like a 600 year old like yeah she's very mature no one should have to experience that much in a lifetime ever Mm -mm. and she had already experienced that when she was only 16 so I think she was like probably like I don't really need to discuss this I'm I want to leave and I'm leaving yeah oh another thing could maybe be that um Elinette's husband was like don't let her come back in like just let her go and maybe since we this is all assumption but um if we assume that he was also physically abusive to Elinette maybe she didn't have an option to allow Centoya to remain in the house yeah that could have happened too for sure yeah. But I mean, yes, we are actually assuming a lot in this episode. Yes. I hope it's clear. That, like, I'm telling you all the facts about Centoria's life and then I'm making inferences. Yes. <laughs> so all of that combined, you know, makes her want to leave. And she does. And she moves in with Cutthroat, who is 24-year-old Garyon McLaughlin. And I don't really know how she meets Garyon, but she does and then she <laughs> lives in a series of hotels with him and he sexually physically and emotionally abuses her and starts forcing her into sex work and then you know the rest of the story yes <laughs> one night she's doing sex work and 
murders Johnny. So he had actually been very severely abusive to her. So I don't know if the abuse in the Brown household was to the extent that this is. It definitely, the documentary definitely makes it seem like they were not. Like this abuse is a lot more severe. So he pulled guns on her multiple times to control her behavior. He raped her multiple times. And at one point, he choked her so badly that she passed out. I don't know if I already said that or not, but this, you know, it's just not okay, obviously. And on top of that, now that he's choked her to where she's passed out, she's very much aware that he probably wouldn't think twice about killing her, considering that he almost did. And I don't really know how you you know, choke someone and control that choking to the point where you're like, oh, this is just choking to pass out or this is choking to kill, you know? Right. So it's like maybe he was trying to kill her and she just woke up and he was like, oh, she'll either wake up or be dead and I don't care. Oh, my God. Because, you know, like how do you choke someone and, and know the outcome of that? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't know. I think like maybe the minute they pass out, you stop because so... When oxygen is cut off from the brain, it takes three minutes for the brain to shut down and then therefore shutting down all of your organs. So you have to be without oxygen for three minutes before that brain death occurs. But what about people who can hold their breath for like 10 minutes? So that's actually a learned behavior. And that's why people who are swimmers and things like that have to train constantly for that sort of thing so that their body can actually hold air for a longer amount of time. Um, but and if you don't build up train. to that, then it... Yeah, if okay, you okay. don't build up to that, and if your body isn't prepared to lose that much oxygen, then you don't preserve it. So if your body knows that you're going to be doing something... Again, it's like a learned behavior. So if you build up like minute per minute or 30 seconds or whatever, however they do it, your body can like learn the behavior to retain oxygen in your cells and not waste them. Whereas Centoya, who obviously wasn't doing anything like that, um, or people who are, you know, suffocated, strangled or something like that, um, they don't have that. So brain death will occur in three minutes. Okay. Well, (laughs) interesting. I didn't know any of that. So that's how long you have to hold someone underwater for them. We're just telling people how to suffocate, smother and strangle people. But yes, I'm pretty sure it's three minutes. Um, at least that's what I've heard. You will learn a lot on this podcast <laughs> how to not get murdered and yes. how to murder. How to murder. Don't murder anyone. But those are not <laughs> tips for, we're not giving those out so you can just murder someone. <laughs> that's not, no, absolutely not. <laughs> so, okay. So the reason I said this whole story is because, in my opinion, everything I just told you constitutes mitigating factors and mitigating circumstances for her crime. And I'm not the only one who thinks that. The psychiatrist I've repeatedly been mentioning says that she had several personality disorders and that they were directly connected to her decision to shoot Johnny in addition to the fact that it was self-defense. So, like, anyone in that position, you could argue self-defense, but now we have Mm -hmm. all of these mitigating factors on top of it that you could totally put yourself in her shoes that night and try to picture having all of these... You know, she's had to look out for her safety herself her entire life. That has been her concern. So when you and you shouldn't have to do that when you're a 16 year old. And so obviously it's like heightened. And then on the night that she thinks someone's trying to hurt her, she responds 
maybe impulsively. Maybe. Very impulsively. But because. Well, maybe. You know. Yeah. It, right, okay. I get allegedly impulsively. So it's. it's Yeah. I mean, it's a very dramatic decision. But he but, could have actually been trying yes, to shoot her. Exactly. So, so it might have been a very that. good so, response. <laughs> yeah. It could have been a very intelligent decision that ultimately saved her life. So. Yeah, I mean, he was like, <laughs> look at all my guns the whole night. So I can totally picture even not, myself yeah. in that situation without all of this stuff being terrified. <laughs> right, especially with someone that you don't know and who you just met on the street. Mm-hmm. And you're in this very dangerous situation to begin with. And that person is literally going to pay you for a service, for a one night only service. And you'll never see that person again, maybe. Um, but... Yeah, I'd be freaked out. That would not be something that I would be comfortable with. And I don't blame her for any of her actions. I agree. And you know what? A conversation that could happen that we'll have in like 30 seconds because I don't. We've side noted like (laughs) a thousand times is that if we were to decriminalize sex work and stop having all of these ridiculous stigma, if we stop stigmatizing it. Yes then it could be done in a more safe way. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yes, and of course, we see that in Amsterdam with the red light district, the sex workers that actually live there um, in the Netherlands, if people don't know where Amsterdam is. Um, but the red light district is regulated by the government. Um, the sex workers have to get tested for um, sexually transmitted diseases. They have health care. It's all this, it's this whole thing. And like... There's There's no reason to not do that. Yeah. And the Netherlands have prisons that are completely empty. Like they are not utilized anymore because people don't do bad things. Like and they've decriminalized all of these separate um, like drug uses. Well, marijuana uses um, decriminalized there as well as it is obviously here in many places and then sex work as well. So all of those things combined create an environment that isn't as toxic as the environment that we are presented with. So all of their prisons are relatively empty, which is impressive. And it's like drug decriminalization in general, not just marijuana, I argue for. But in terms of decriminalizing sex work, it's obviously an issue that is classist because Tons of women and men, mostly women, though, Mm -hmm. who work full time jobs still need supplemental income. And we we could go back to the single mom argument and like all of the issues facing people who try to support their families. And sex work is a really viable option for a lot of people to make extra money at night. And it's just right. And all of those things are consensual sexual experiences because you are consenting as a sex worker to have that experience with someone. So if we just legalized it, we would get rid of the stigma, like you said, and your body, your choice. Right. And so, like, also, I mean, to clarify, it could very easily turn into rape. Like if you course. are consent, just a consent, a quick consenting conversation, <laughs> you know, you can be consenting when it starts and you can change your mind any moment during Absolutely. a sexual encounter. You have that option as a human being. And there's a lot of non-consensual sex work that happens, a lot of exploitation. But in terms of like just... I'm going to go out and make some, you know, make $100. I'm just going to have sex with someone and I'm going to consent to it. It's that needs to we need to address that issue in our country. Anyways. (laughs) okay. so the reason that we are talking about Centoya in general is because, well, 
the reason she's at the forefront recently and why you might have heard her name is that her case went in front of the Tennessee State Supreme Court in 2018 and... Basically, what happened was they argued her appeal on the grounds of, first of all, this is way too harsh of a sentence for a minor. Secondly, look at all she's done in prison. Example, she graduated from college in prison from Lipscomb University in Nashville. They actually have a thing called Life Program where they pair traditional students with inmates specifically at the Tennessee Prison for Women. And those women can graduate with a degree. They get a day pass to walk across the stage and get their diploma, this whole thing. So they bring up that. They bring up a lot of the advocacy work she's been doing, a lot of the work she's done on herself in terms of her potential personality disorders. They bring all this up. Unfortunately, the court found that the mandatory minimum Is that right? Yeah. Mandatory minimum (laughs) of 51 years must remain. And everyone was super annoyed. I was super annoyed. Claire was super annoyed. Yep. You were probably super annoyed. And basically, though, the reason that they had to make this decision is that Tennessee law only had three outcomes for people convicted of first degree murder, regardless of their age. And those were the death penalty life without possibility of parole or life with possibility of parole after serving the mandatory minimum of 51 years, which is obviously what Centoya was given and obviously the lesser of all three of those things. So when a Supreme Court is reviewing a lower court's decision, it's not necessarily their job to like re re rehear the case. I mean, there's not it's not like they redo the whole thing. They're just solely looking at, did the lower court apply the law correctly? And they did. And so it's not necessarily like the appellate court's problem or issue. It's the fact that Tennessee has some super backwards legislation when it comes to sentencing guidelines, particularly for juveniles. So if we want to fix those issues, we need to look at legislation is what I'm saying. So don't be mad at the court. They did their job. Right. And, you know. Their job is to follow the law, and the law is the thing that's backwards. Right. So after this, there was a really big push for her clemency, which is the same thing as a pardon. It just means that you are absolved of all guilt, and you get to leave, and and you're done. Be a free person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, so okay, so after the Tennessee Supreme Court found this, all the people who were advocating for her case to get heard in, that, in front of that court— now change the dialogue to we don't even need another court. Like, we just need to give her clemency. Like, there's no mm-hmm. reason she needs to still be in prison. She's 30 years old. She served, what is that, 15, 14 years in prison for something that she probably should have never served in time in prison for, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, so everyone... Like, everyone is pushing for this. <laughs> Not everyone. I'm kidding. There were tons of annoying people who weren't. Sure. But on January 7th, 2019, so to today, oh my gosh, two months ago <laughs> from today, the day we're recording. Yes. Centoya was granted clemency by Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam, and she is scheduled to be released from prison on August 7th. Yay! So can't wait to see what Centoya does when she gets out. I love when people come from like difficult backgrounds and then they like take that and they channel it into like all these positive things. And so I just know that's what she's going to do. And I can't wait. Like, I hope she starts like a foundation or 
maybe goes to law school or something. Oh, that would be really cool if be she so did cool. that. Yeah. Could she become a lawyer with her criminal background? Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So go to the University of Montana and we'll go to school together. <laughs> Are you telling Centoya to do that? Yeah, Centoya is not <laughs> listening to this, but someone tell her. <laughs> someone go find her. Oh, my God. You should just write her a letter. Oh, my God, I should. Go yeah. to school with me. We'll be study buddies. Yes. And then we'll open a criminal defense firm together. That would be epic. That'd be so cool. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. So even though we have a super positive outcome for Centoya and we're all happy, there's still a lot of work to be done. So in Tennessee, currently, there are 13 inmates serving life without parole which is not what Centoya was doing. She had, was going to get parole eventually. So 13, no parole. These are <laughs> juveniles too. Yeah. And then on top of that, there are roughly 100 other juveniles who are serving the mandatory minimum of 51 years like Centoya was. So obviously not all of those juveniles have the same circumstances as Centoya does. But in general, I, I mean, I literally don't care what you do. If you're a juvenile, those are both way too harsh sentences. And that needs to be fixed. So <laughs> that's the end of our story. If any of that made you as infuriated as it made <laughs> me, I just have a little advice. And that is to vote for Bernie. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to do that. Obviously, we can't advocate for like like. We can't tell you to do it, but... No. But if you would like to... <laughs> I would just suggest looking up his criminal justice reform ideas and maybe make an informed opinion that is pro-Bernie. If you would like to. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it on the note of, we're happy that this happened, but unfortunately, it's not rare, and we need to make this more of a widespread outcome for people. Absolutely. So, yeah. Uh, thanks for listening to <laughs> season four. We mm -hmm. may or may not be releasing something in like two weeks. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Obviously we are because we're telling you about it. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> and also we want to shout out our favorite professor, Professor Wolfgang, who told me the other day that he listened to an episode of our podcast, and yep. he doesn't even like true crime. He's just a nice, supportive professor. Yes. So thanks for listening, Professor Wolfgang, and uh, please watch Legally Blonde, the musical, for both of our sakes. <laughs> please do that. <laughs> thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. Bye. Bye.